Well, good morning. And uh, I think there's about four or five hundred FBCers who are still home thawing out. And um, but if uh, you were there last night and uh, participating and, and involved, uh, thank you very much. Um, and tonight we're going to do the same thing and follow the star. So uh, a great time. And and it's you know I hope the community um, thanks us. Uh, because not only do we give them their Christmas cookies for the year, uh, this year we are keeping them from a snowstorm. <laughs> you realize it's just an hour down the road. It's snowing and be banned. Uh, you know, one to three inches, four inches down, uh, two hours down the road, four to eight inches. And it just stops right here because the Lord is good to us, right? And, and uh, we're grateful. Now watch it start snowing, right? <laughs> I just messed it up. Good news. But for a moment, I just want to share some bad news with you. Um, hang in there. But did you happen to hear this week, all the gains of the stock market this year were basically wiped out in base, two days of trading this week? Just a little bad news there. Did you also read where uh, our government is facing another looming shutdown, just so you know. Did, and did you happen to read this week that life expectancy in the United States has dropped second time in three years? And did you read why life expectancy? The Centers for Disease Control have said that this, this trend of life expectancy dropping is the worst trend in a hundred years here in the United States. And, and you want to know why it's dropping? Two major reasons. Suicide rate is the highest it's been in half a century. Suicide rate. And the second reason the CDC says it's happening is because of drug-related deaths, overdosing. Those are two chief reasons they said life expectancy in the United States is dropping. <laughs> you know, bad news is always bad news. And you, you know, we could add, I could spend the next 20 minutes talk to a half hour telling you more bad news, I guess, but it, uh, it's, it can be discouraging. It sucks the life out of you. And um, Jesus himself could attest uh, that that's what bad news does. You say, did Jesus ever get discouraged? Well, um, we're going to look at that today from the fifth gospel. Now, if you've been with our study here on the book of Isaiah, you know that the fifth gospel is the book of Isaiah. And we just read Isaiah 49 this morning. Um, the fifth gospel, the prophetic work of Isaiah, it encompasses uh, such such a, a, a massive amount of information related to the coming Messiah, according to uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we talk about his, his birth. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. It talks about his life. It talks about his death, um, his resurrection. Isaiah speaks as a prophetic book about his coming again, about, the, about a kingdom that he's going to set up. This whole um, gamut of the life of the Messiah 
Isaiah fills us in, plus many other details. One of his favorite words about the Messiah, the coming anointed one, is that he is the servant of the Lord. And we've seen that there are four songs that Isaiah wrote, the songs of the servant. The one that we looked at last week and the last one, the first and the fourth songs, are songs that are, are written about the servant. But the two middle songs are songs that are sung by the servant himself in the first person. If you noticed as it was being read, it's the servant who is talking this time in this passage. And so I want to look a little more detail on the 49th chapter of Isaiah and this second song of the servant. And I want to draw out this this sense of his self-identity. Listen to me, O islands or coastlands. Pay attention, he says. I have something I want to share with you, he says, about my identity, about who I am. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. His self-identity. He understands that he has been raised up for a special purpose. He plays a special role. He has a special name. He's been called to a, a unique special mission from his mother's womb. This all began from the, the, the innermost uh, recesses of my mother's body. As I was formed, as I was fashioned, I was named. He says, my birth is no accident. It's been planned. There's a purpose. And it involves a very special gift that he's been given. He says in verse 2, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, and he's also made me a select arrow, or a, I think some of our translations say a polished arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. It speaks of, of this servant's ability to speak truth and to speak it powerfully, a sword that speaks with power, with effectiveness, uh, a select, a polished arrow that flies true and hits its target, its intended target. The ability to speak powerfully and uniquely truth. This is the servant fashioned in the womb of that mother of his, being able to take truth and deliver it with precision, with accuracy. And then he understands his role, his mission as the fulfilled Israel. He says in verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. Now, this is not referring to the nation of Israel. This is referring to this unique selected servant who's fashioned, this individual servant of the Lord fashioned in that mother's womb to speak truth powerfully but to fulfill the calling of Israel. Now, I want to just mention Exodus chapter 19 real quickly. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So said God, when the Israelites came out of bondage in Egypt, came to Mount Sinai, were given the law and the Ten Commandments, and God says, you are going to be my special people. You are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are going to stand in the gap between me, the holy God, and my fallen creation. That's what priests do. You're going to mediate my program, my plan, and my character to a world. Israel, you are special. 
You are special. You are to display the glory of God. Isaiah, or Jeremiah said it this way, I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, for glory. But they didn't listen, and that was the problem. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. I'm raising you up for my renown, for my praise. But they failed. Go back just one chapter in Isaiah 48, chapter 48, verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob. You are named Israel. You shall come forth, or, and who came forth uh, from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. You are special. You are my chosen people. I've called you forth from the loins of Judah. But not in truth, not in righteousness. Look at verse 4. Because I know that you are obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew. Your forehead bronze. You are a stiff-necked, rebellious people. This is what God is saying. This is his estimation of the special chosen nation Israel. Time and time again, you've raised your hand of rebellion against me. You are a stiff-necked people. They failed. Israel failed in its mission. And so God raises up a servant, a special, unique, chosen servant, uniquely fashioned, given a unique name, fashioned in the womb of his mother, a unique name and a unique calling, I want you to be the ideal Israel to fulfill all that my plan was for Israel that they did not fulfill. The nation of Israel was not glorifying God. He comes to a servant and says, you are called to glorify my name. Now, before we keep going on in Isaiah, think of the Lord Jesus Christ for a moment. When Gabriel came, to Mary, made the announcement, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Is that not almost word for word of verse 1 of chapter 49? The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named me. In your womb you will conceive and have a son, and you will call his name. I'm naming him Jesus. Salvation. His mouth, his words were like a, a sharp sword, a polished arrow. And we read in, in places like John chapter 7, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Or in John 6, if the, there's a spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, their spirit, their life. Or Revelation chapter 19, how precise is this? His name is called the Word of God, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. The servant of the Lord of Isaiah 49, so filled in the person of Jesus Christ. You are to display my glory. What Israel failed to do, you, my servant, uniquely fashioned, uniquely named, uniquely called to be the ideal Israel, you are to declare my glory. And John writes in chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, 
glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus was born into the world, he came and sang the song of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, to fulfill his role as a servant of the Lord. That's his self-identity. But then there's this insertion in verse 4 that just doesn't even seem to fit. And you see a little bit of the humanness, of the reality of the struggle of this servant. Look at the first part of verse 4. And he continues to speak. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Well, here's reality setting in. Here's a special servant named and called to be the ideal Israel, empowered, gifted with powerful words of truth, to live out triumphantly? Well, not exactly. See the key words there? I've toiled, or I, there's no purpose. It's vanity. I've spent strength for nothing. It's the Hebrew word tohu, which Isaiah has used before that we find in Genesis chapter 1, that when God created the world before, it was nothingness and void. I've spent my, my strength, he says, for nothing, for vanity. That's the Hebrew word havel or havel, which is used over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, emptiness, emptiness, vanity, vanity. It's all nothingness. And here the, the servant of the Lord, for one brief moment, he looks at his life and he looks at what he's supposed to be called to do and he says, it's nothing, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. And had become weary, seemed to come up empty in his efforts. One commentator put it this way, if the servant described in this passage is more than human, he is no less than human. Frustration, feelings of futility, all too familiar to everyone who inhabits flesh, were part of the burden he came to bear. Again, don't we see this over and over again in the life of Christ? Matthew chapter 17, when his disciples were unable to cure a, a sick child, Jesus says, you unbelieving, you perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Stay a while and pray. His closest friends. And he comes back and they're sleeping. Matthew 26 says he, he began to be grieved and distressed. So you could not pray and keep watch for one hour? And then a few hours later as he hangs on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And by the world's standards, futility, vanity, emptiness. But notice, again, verse 4, and the last part of that. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And here the servant of the Lord so quickly acknowledges his confident trust in Jehovah God. It's an acknowledgement of the struggle. And he he didn't sugarcoat it. Emptiness, vanity, pain.
but my God will execute his justice. My reward is with him. And so we see the servant's self-identity. We see his honest struggle with life. But thirdly, we see his mission. Verse 5, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. Do you notice the, the, the cause and effect there? The first part of verse 5, now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant in order to bring, to bring Jacob back to him. That's my mission, my calling. In order to, for that Israel will be gathered to him for I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. And he says though, it's, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. That, that's too... That's too puny of a, of a mission. That's just too, it doesn't befit you. And so, I will make you also a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Two aspects to his mission. He's coming into the world to do a spiritual work within the nation of Israel itself. His mission is to the people of Israel and to the world of the Gentiles. A light to the end of the world. He said salvation will come to the end of the world. A light to the nations. Two separate missions. Verse 7, And thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, thus says the Lord to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nations, that's his first coming, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, and princesses will bow down, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. That's his second coming. The one who is despised and abhorred, the one from whom men turned their back and hid their face. The one that people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Abhorred and despised, and yet one day kings will arise at his presence and princesses will bow down before him because the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, is faithful. What at one point seemed to be failure will break forth into victory. The role of the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah. And so God's plan, carried out through his servant, will be accomplished fully and completely one day because of his compassionate heart. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, Jehovah, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you as a covenant of the people to restore the land and to make them inherit the desolate heritages. And they will say to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves along the roads. They will feed and their pastures will be on all the bare heights. And they will not hunger or thirst, and neither will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to the springs of water. Now, again, in our study of Isaiah, 
we see is that this prophet will, will, will prophesy and he speaks of the fortunes that are yet to come. Much of what he said had a, a near fulfillment. In fact, 150 years after these words were spoken, these, this song was originally sung. 150 years later, God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Jewish people were set free from their captivity in Babylon and 50,000 Jews returned home. And the good shepherd who had compassion on them led them and guided them home. Verse 11, I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. And behold, these shall come from afar. And lo, they will come from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth in joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on his afflicted. And now we talk about that far distant that is yet to be fulfilled when the Messiah comes a second time. Not calling a group of slaves from Babylon, 50,000 in number, from this locality in the ancient far Near East, but from the north and from the south and from the east, from the far reaches of Sinem. And if you were to talk to many of the Chinese believers, followers of Jesus Christ today, they would turn to this passage and they would say, this refers to China. And indeed, some of the commentators believe the etymology of this word, sinem, uh, does in fact point to some far eastern place, possibly China. In fact, Franz Dalich, who's an old uh, 19th century uh, Hebrew scholar, that's his take on this, that this is referring to places in China. But the point being that from around the world, God is going to draw his people, the afflicted ones. He's going to have compassion on them. And a day is coming beyond that Babylonian captivity, a day yet to come, the mission of the servant will be completely fulfilled to raise up the tribes of Judah, to call the Israelites back home. So let's rejoice, says Isaiah, because the Redeemer of Israel will come and the light to the nations will appear. Eight days after Jesus was born, you remember the story? Mary and Joseph did what good Jewish parents would do, and they took that little baby to be presented to the temple. And there was an elderly man there by the name of Simeon. And Simeon takes that little baby in his arms, Luke says, and he says, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. I can die in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your Isaiah, your Jesus, your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And holding that little baby, Simeon sings the song of Isaiah 49. What Isaiah had prophesied over 700 years earlier 
was beginning to be fulfilled. The child was born to the virgin, and indeed his name was Emmanuel. God is with us. The servant of the Lord had come to provide salvation for the people of Israel and for the whole world, to the end of the world. There are so many things, I think, in this passage that, that uh, if we took time, if we, if we were, if it was cool to do that here, we would now break up into small groups, you know, turn your chairs around and, and come up with ten things in this passage, and then I could go home and eat and take a nap. But since we don't do that here, I'm going to share with you three things that just, to me, are astounding in this passage. Three things that stand out. Here's the first one. We need to embrace the truth that God's faithfulness is to His people, Israel. The servant was called to raise up the tribes of Jacob, it says, to restore the hearts of Israel. And in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their stiff-necked rebellion, in spite of the centuries of the high-handed fist in the face of God that says we're going to do it our way over and over and over again. You see this faithful heart of God who's true to His Word, to His promises that were unconditional. No reason. I mean, there, there's no um, reason why you would not do verse 13, shout for joy. O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Now, I realize many good scholars believe that God's plan for Israel is over, that it ended when Jesus was crucified in the ultimate rejection on the cross. We don't teach that here at Fellowship Bible Church for many reasons beyond just lexically and grammatically and exegetically and theologically. But there's another good reason why I believe that God's not finished with Israel as a nation. And it's right here in the song of Isaiah 49. You see, the incarnation, Christmas, is ultimately about a servant who was born for Israel. Verse 5 again says, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant. I was formed in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. You see, if God's plan for Israel is over, then my understanding is the servant of the Lord failed. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who was formed in the womb, given powerful word to drive home truth, was raised up for a special mission to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. And it's going to happen. Look at the, we didn't read in verse 14, but just keep reading verse 14 and 15, 16. But Zion said, and that's Jerusalem, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord responds in verse 15, can, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Okay, even thieves may forget. 
but I will not forget you. Behold, look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. God is not finished with Israel. Because the Scriptures teach that. The role of the Messiah promises it. And a day is coming when it will be fulfilled. You can't, verse 7 cannot take place if there's no Israel at the end. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. He says this to his Messiah, the servant who's the despised one, the one who came abhorred by the nations in his first coming, to the servant of the rulers who will one day be the one that kings shall see and arise and princesses shall bow down before because the Lord is faithful and he will fulfill this. I'm astounded at the faithfulness of God to Israel. Astounds me. Although I've got a, maybe a bigger problem. Why has he been faithful to me? And why is he faithful to you? Because he is faithful to himself. And when he says, I promise you, he delivers. The second thing that just astounds me of the, this passage, it's God's compassion, his care to the disheartened. You know, life gets messy. It's difficult as we go through life. I have toiled in vain, he says in verse 4. I've spent my strength for nothing, for vanity. But oh, so quickly the contrast comes. It's a very strong um, conjunction that, that leads to the second part of verse 4. Yet surely, <laughs> yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord and my reward is with the God. For one brief moment, there's toil and emptiness and vanity, but certainly... The Lord is my justice, is my reward. You know what the most important word in that verse is? Verse 4, last part of verse 4. For me, you know what the most important word is? It's the word with. <laughs> Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. It's a preposition of relationship. It's a, it's a particle that connects relationally. Randy Alcorn reminds us, in our time of suffering, God doesn't give answers as much as he gives himself. Jerry Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, writes, it is often the case, as all saints know, that fellowship with the Father and the Son is most vivid and sweet, and Christian joy is the greatest when the cross is the heaviest. Was it not David, the great king, who said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Not some distant God that deists would uh, claim is out there somewhere. He's with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
And we may not feel that way every time, but we can believe it. Because as they say, when you don't see his hand, you can always trust his heart. His promise is to never leave us nor forsake us. And so the servant embraced the truth and invites us to do the same. The compassionate care of a God who's always with us. I'm astounded that God would be that patient and that kind and that caring for me. There's a third thing that amazes me, and that is this resolve of God, this determination of God to save the world, to fulfill His master plan against all odds, against all opposition, a master plan, the center of which, the key aspect of which was this servant fashioned in his mother's womb and called to be the ideal Israel to proclaim what Israel never did proclaim, the glory of God. And so Jesus left his heavenly glory. He came into our mess as the servant of Jehovah, despised and abhorred, as it says in this verse, verse 7. Rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, God went to the greatest of lengths to bring salvation to the end of the earth. Folks, we are not living right now in the end of the earth. When I pastored in little rural Nebraska, we saw the end of the earth from there. But we had not yet lived there, and we're not living there, and that means that God has brought salvation to you because he says he brings it to the end of the earth. It was God's plan, it was God's heart that into our world of mess, his Savior would come and save us from our sins. The angelic pronouncement and song to those shepherds that night was spot on. Do not fear, for behold, I bring you good news and great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And in a world of bad news, I'm astounded, I'm shocked really when you think about it, that God would go to those great lengths to be abhorred, to be despised, to be crucified, to bring you and me eternal salvation, eternal life. And one day, the kings will see and arise when he returns. And princesses will bow. In fact, every knee will bow, the Apostle Paul says, and every tongue will confess, this is Jesus, Yeshua, the salvation of the Lord, the one named so by Jehovah God, Jesus. He is Lord.
Do you know him? I don't want to assume for one moment that just because you're here this morning, if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. And I hope you don't assume that either. Because being here this morning, volunteering at Follow the Star, baking cookies, giving half your wealth to the poor, or obeying the Ten Commandments will somehow get you in right with God. It won't. Because the Bible teaches us our sins have separated us from a holy God. And a great chasm exists between us and Him. But in love, and in this marvelous plan, He sent His servant into the world. And Jesus Christ came for the express purpose of paying the penalty of our sins, of bridging that gap that exists between us as sinners and God who is holy. And on the third day after dying for our sins, he rose again. It proved that every sin we've ever committed and will ever commit was paid for in full by the Savior, Jesus. And so all we have to do, the good news to be proclaimed today is if you want to have absolute assurance and total, total assurance that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. The good news is you receive that free gift by simply believing that this is true. Isn't that amazing? I'm not going to ask you this morning to get out of your seat, walk an aisle, come up to the front, say a prayer. I'm not going to ask you to give money to a special account or do anything to enter the gates of heaven. I'm simply going to invite you right now, trust Jesus Christ. He died for you. He rose again. He's the only means of eternal salvation. Do you believe it right now? And if you came here today, we're thinking some other things, I'm inviting you to transfer your trust right now off of all those other things and put them on Christ. And I guarantee you, and from the authority of God's Word, God promises you He gives you the free gift of eternal life right then, right then, in that moment, forever. Because He's a compassionate, great God. Would you do that today? And will you today pray for those thousands of people who will be coming even tonight to hear maybe for the first time the good news? Will you be willing to commit in this Christmas season to pray and, and maybe talk to with one person, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, and share the good news of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, you have named him Yeshua, Isaiah, <laughs> the salvation is of the Lord, Jesus, because he will save his people and the ends of the earth will bring salvation. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today that you would be working in their heart they don't know yet where maybe they will spend eternity. May you open their heart to, to receive by faith this good news and forever and eternally be changed. Thank you for this season. Thank you for what it means to the Jewish people, though they don't know it, what it means 
to the ends of the earth. May we proclaim it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.